Our sermon text and epistle lesson is from Ephesians 3. And so give your ear to God's infallible word. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength and may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. As far the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for his blessing on the reading and hearing of his word. Father, we need your blessing. We need your spirit who wrote these words through the apostle Paul to be in our midst, to open our hearts and our minds, to believe your good promises, to entrust ourselves to you, and then to do in response to your grace, to do what you are calling us to do as your sons and daughters. Especially, we ask for your help in this wonderful privilege and duty of prayer, of talking to you, making our requests known to you, bringing our petitions before the throne of grace. Teach us to pray even in this hour as we sit under your word. And do it for the sake of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in previous sermons, going back to the beginning of December of last year, We've looked at Paul's priorities in prayer. Our goal has been to learn from the apostle how to talk to God and what to talk to God about. Maybe even when to talk to God. Today we look at Paul's intercessory prayer at the end of Ephesians 3. The central theme of this prayer is resurrection power. If your goal is to live in the power of the resurrection, if you want to walk in the newness of resurrection life, then you need to ask God for the power that comes directly from the throne of the resurrected Christ. When we talk about Christ's resurrection, we we usually focus either on its past implications or its future implication, right? 
We, the past implication of Christ's resurrection is that it saved us from sin. The resurrection of Jesus is the basis of our righteous standing before God. Romans 4, 5, uh, 25, for example, says that Jesus was raised from the dead for our justification, our being declared righteous before God. That's the past implication. The future implication of Christ's resurrection is that we, like Jesus, will be raised from among the dead one day, on the last day. The resurrection of Jesus is the basis of our future resurrection. Romans 8.11, for example, says that if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He will one day raise you from the dead as well, giving life to your mortal body. That's Romans 8.11. When we talk about Christ's resurrection, then we tend to focus on one or both of those two aspects. It's past implication, our salvation from sin, and it's future implication, our bodily resurrection, our hope at the end of the age. But today I want to consider one of the present implications of Christ's resurrection. After all, down in verse 20 of today's text, it's in the gray, we're not really going to get to it uh, except for right now. But down in verse 20, it, uh, Ephesians 3.20, Paul says that the power he's praying for is already at work within us. It's a present reality in the inner being, in the, in the heart of every Christian, every uh, uh, believer, every person who is in Christ and who has his spirit. Earlier in this same letter, in Ephesians 1, Paul says that the power of God toward believers is the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's why I keep calling this power resurrection power. Paul establishes that theological point in Ephesians 1. The prayer at the end of Ephesians 3 that we're, th that we're looking at today contains two rich and lengthy petitions that are based on, that, that are petitions for that power. Paul asks for two things. First, in verses 16 and 17, he prays that God would strengthen the saints with power through his spirit in our inner being. Second, Paul prays that the spirit's power would enable the saints to understand the infinite dimensions of Christ's love. That's verses 17 to 19. And so I ask again the kind of question I've asked many times already in this series on prayer. What if our prayers for one another, for those that we love, for our brothers and sisters in the faith, what if they mirrored Paul's prayers for fellow Christians? What if you were praying regularly that God would strengthen the brethren of this body with resurrection power through his spirit in their inner being? What if we were asking God for the resurrection power that would enable the saints to comprehend, to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ? Now, if you're the type of person that pays attention to handouts, you, you may be wondering why... You know, at this point, why, why didn't he title this thing, Pray for Resurrection Power? 
instead of pray for spiritual power, which is, I think, how, yeah. Uh, why, why that instead of pray, pray for resurrection power? Well, it's because in the passage from Ephesians 3, Paul says that resurrection power is power that comes through or from, by means of, the Holy Spirit. And that's what I mean when I say spiritual power, Holy Spirit power, which is the exact same thing as the resurrection power that he talks about in Ephesians 1. So in an effort to stay close to the language used in our text, I just I titled the sermon, Pray for Spiritual Power. But we need to know that it's the same as the resurrection power in Ephesians 1. And Jesus teaches in Luke 11 that the main gift God gives in, in, in answer to faith-filled prayers is the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you then, who are evil, Jesus says, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? John 11, or Luke eleven, thirteen. So when we pray for spiritual growth, that was the title last week, pray for spiritual growth or for spiritual power this week, we're praying in essence for the Holy Spirit himself. And the promise of Jesus in Luke 11 is that the Father always gives the Spirit to those who ask. And in many ways, the Spirit, the giving of the Spirit is the answer to every prayer. This week and next, Lord willing, we're going to look at Paul's two petitions here in Ephesians 3. And, and so, as we do, we'll consider the present implications of Christ's resurrection and its spiritual, Holy Spirit power, which is available to God's people. It's, it's a gift, it's a promise that we get by means of asking for it, by means of prayer. So the first present implication, which is all we'll get to today, we'll get to the second point next week, in verses 16 and 17, is that you should pray that God would strengthen the saints with power through His Spirit in their inner being. That's, that's, that's some rich, dense stuff there. Pray that God would strengthen the saints with power through His Spirit in their inner being. Verse 16, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We've already seen what kind of power Paul's praying, what he's talk, kind of power he's talking about here. It's resurrection power, spiritual power, power that comes from the same Spirit, Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead. But now we need to explore the, the, the domain the sphere that this power operates in. What's the sphere? Where is this power exercised? Well, the answer is at the very end of verse 16. In the inner being. Some translations, in the inner man, inner person, inner self. Paul's prayer is that you would be strengthened with power through his spirit at the core of you in your inner being. 
the best place maybe to go outside of this text to, to learn what inner being or inner self means is that uh, passage from 2 Corinthians 4, where, where Paul famously draws a contrast between the outer man and the inner man. Listen as I read 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says here that our bodies are wasting away. They're wearing down, either by the onslaught of time, or as in in Paul's case, the onslaught of affliction as well. But if you're a believer in Christ, while your outer self is wasting away, your inner self is being renewed in strength and in power daily, Paul says, day by day. The spirit who lives in you, in your inner being, in your heart, is transforming your inner person, your inner man, moving you from glory to more glory, from one degree of glory to another, Paul says in that same context in 2 Corinthians. God doesn't promise in health and increasing strength in this life. He doesn't give our bodies resurrection power in this life. That is to come, but not in this life. And and when adults reach a certain age, they begin to know this truth. We begin to know this truth by experience, firsthand. Our bodies are breaking down. They're not moving from glory to glory. Uh, it's sort of in the opposite direction, right? <clears throat> They're hastening toward death, okay? That, this is unavoidable. They're, they... These bodies won't receive new life until the end of the age comes, when Jesus returns to earth to raise our bodies from the dead. And that's our hope, the resurrection from among the dead. That's what we look forward to. In the meantime, though, God gives his people resurrection life even now. There's, so I've been, there's a not yet to this that we look forward to. That's our hope. But there's a now. There's an already aspect to this. He shares his resurrection power with you in this life. He just doesn't give it to your mortal body yet. Right now on this side of your bodily resurrection, the focus of God's renewing power, renewing work in your life is in your soul, in your inward person, in your inner being. In your heart, as Paul refers to the heart in verse 17. The resurrection of your body comes at the end. But God gives the power of Christ's resurrection to your inner self now, immediately. When you become a Christian, when you are born again, when you are in Christ, as soon as you are in Christ, you have this resurrection power working 
in you at your core, transforming you from the inside out. And so we, we know that in this life, you know that in this life your external self will wither away, but the spirit of the resurrected Christ will continue to renew your inner self, filling it with, with increasing strength and power day by day. This is important for us to, to meditate on and, and to get into our bones. Many, many people are desperate for good health and good looks and strong bodies. We, we may eat accordingly, eat natural, eat organic. Is, you know, we, we have new diets presented to us almost daily, it seems. We exercise our cores. We make our muscles strong. We, we maybe weigh ourselves routinely. We wear nice clothes and, and look in the mirror. We, we make our outer self look good, and we are given all kinds of tools for doing this. When we go out into the world, we want to look a certain way. We want to present ourselves a certain way. But do we hunger for the transformation of our inner man? Uh, Don Carson gets to the heart of the matter in his comments on Ephesians 3.16. He says, In a culture where so many people are desperate for good health, but not particularly hungry for the transformation of the inner being, Christians are in urgent need of praying for displays of God's power in the inner being. In short, Paul's primary concern is to pray for a display of God's mighty power in the domain of our being that controls our character and prepares us for heaven. Have you ever thought of it that way? Your inner being is the part of you that controls your character and prepares you for heaven. It's the spring from which your mouth speaks. It's the source of all your thoughts, all your actions. And so answer this question honestly. Which do you desire more? For the world to see an attractive put together, well-kept, outer self, or for God to see a beautiful or attractive, well-kept inner self? Which do you work at, work for more? Which do you plan for? Which do you spend more time on, or at least which would you like to spend more time on? Making your muscles strong and strengthening your physical core or making your soul strong and strengthening your spiritual core. In other words, are you, are you more concerned about the outward you than you are the inward you? Paul's prayer is that God would work his mighty power in the sphere, the domain that matters most. Your inner self. Remember what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. It's 1 Timothy 4.8. Ladies, Peter uses the same kind of language of inner and outer self when he when he addresses you in 1 Peter 3. 
He says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, your beauty should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4. The power that Paul's asking for in Ephesians 3 is the opposite of worldly strength. It's a power that comes, it doesn't come, I should say, with, with privilege and advantage in this world. It's not a power that helps us leverage things in this life, in the present world. It's not a power that makes your life easier, more convenient, more comfortable, even happier. It's not a triumphalistic power. It's the opposite of these things. It's a power that gives you the strength, actually, to suffer well with Christ. That's the kind of power that Paul's talking about. And that's exactly what Paul says about resurrection power in Philippians 3. He even calls it that, power of the resurrection. Listen to uh, Philippians 3. Verses 10 and 11. Paul says, My goal is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And then listen to the next phrase. And fellowship of his sufferings. He immediately gets to the purpose of this. The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from among the dead. So did you hear that how the power of the resurrection is followed by and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death? Paul's not seeking strength and power from God for personal gain, personal advantage. He's asking for resurrection power so that he can suffer well with Christ so that he can endure affliction with his eyes fixed on Jesus the whole time. Paul wants the power of Christ's resurrection so that he can be conformed to Christ's death. This is very powerful stuff. Some of you will likely need this power in a particular way, even in the coming week as Christ conforms you, as God conforms you to Christ's death through difficult circumstances, through trials, through suffering. This week may present unusual trials even. It may involve out-of-the-ordinary suffering that, will, that you will only be able to endure faithfully, joyfully, as long as you are living in the power of Christ's resurrection and therefore being conformed to his death. Make sure then, starting right now, 
that your goal is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death, Philippians 3.10. And, and also, never lose sight of the next verse that I read, Philippians 3.11, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from among the dead. That's the hope at the end of all of this. The power of Christ's resurrection empowers you to become like Jesus in his sufferings and death so that one day you will become like him in his resurrection from among the dead. That's where this is headed. The, the present implications are driving to the future, are headed toward the future implications. And this is how the logic of resurrection power works. It conforms you to Christ's death in order to prepare you for resurrection from among the dead on the last day. Now let's come back to our text, back to Ephesians 3. At the beginning of verse 17, Paul gives a general purpose of the power he's, he's praying for. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, have you noticed yet, have you noticed the Trinitarian shape of this prayer? Already by the time we, that we get halfway through verse 17, Paul's referred to all three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you look up in verse 14, Paul mentions the Father explicitly as the one he bows before in prayer. He bows his knees before the Father, he says. And in verse 16, he's praying according to the riches of the Father's glory. Later in that same verse, later in verse 16, he asks for the power that comes through the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And then the Son gets mentioned at the beginning of verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul was a Trinitarian believer and a Trinitarian prayer. The God he prayed to isn't just any God. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. The God you pray to is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. It's fitting, too, that all three persons of God, of the Godhead, show up in Paul's request for resurrection power. It's fitting that, they all, that all three persons show up because all three persons of God were involved in the resurrection of Jesus, of Christ. Did you know that? At least 15 times in the New Testament, God the Father is said to have raised Jesus from the dead. The book of Acts contains about 10 of those References The Father raised Jesus from among the dead. But in, the, in at least three other places, Paul says that the Spirit was also instrumental in raising Jesus from the grave. One of those places is what I've already read, uh, Romans 8, 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. So the Father and the Spirit were both in actively involved in raising Jesus. But what about the Son? What about the second person of the Trinity? Was he also involved? Yes, Jesus also raised himself from the dead. In John 2, Jesus tells the Jews, 
if you destroy this temple, meaning if you kill this body, destroy this body, if you kill me, in three days, I will raise it up. John 2, 19. Later in John 10, Jesus says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. That's John 10, 17 and 18. The resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead is a Trinitarian power. It's the power of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when Paul asks God for power, he realizes he's asking for the power of the triune God. The power that lives in you, the, the resurrection power in your inner being that makes you more like Christ and conforms you to his death is nothing less than and nothing other than the power of the Trinity. Look again at that opening phrase in verse 17. And we're back in Ephesians 3, beginning the beginning of verse 17. You can see it on your handout. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The word dwell, of course, means to live. Paul's desire is for Christ to live inside of you. His prayer is for Jesus to take up residence in your heart, in your inner being. Paul wants Christ to live inside of you so that you become more Christ-like. This is how the Father... This is how the Father conforms you into the image of His Son. He puts the Son inside of you, in your heart, in your inner being. And then He transforms you from the inside out. He renovates you from the inside out. So Paul's first petition here is a plea for power. The power to know God and to understand his word. The power to think and act and talk like Jesus. The power to see with the eyes of faith, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. The power to put your hope, your resurrection hope, in Christ. The power to keep in step with the Spirit and produce his fruit in this life, in the present age. The power to turn away from sin, from lust, and to pursue holiness and purity. The power to put off the old man and to put on Christ. The power to give thanks in all circumstances. The power to admit when you're wrong, to humble yourself before God and others. The power to discern spiritual things. The power to do good without having to be noticed and recognized. The power to grow in your conformity to Christ's death. Now, we know from experience when, when people, when humans, take up residence in a place, in a home, a dwelling place of some kind, for a long time especially, eventually their presence and their personality characterizes that dwelling place, Right? We see this all the time. My family's presence characterizes our home in a particular way that reflects who we are, what we're about. 
maybe our strengths and our weaknesses. My presence characterizes my office space, especially my desk, for better or worse. An old hymn from the 19th century captures this idea beautifully. It's called, Thou Whose Name Is Called Jesus. One of the verses is based on, on Ephesians 3.17. It says, Make my life a bright outshining of thy life, that all may see thine own resurrection power mightily put forth in me. Ever let my heart become yet more consciously thy home. I, I quoted from Carson earlier, and I'm going to do it again because he has a wonderful illustration that I just couldn't top uh, or or I can't do any better than this. In his exposition of Ephesians 3.17, he says this. The picture becomes clearer if we think of an analogy. Picture a couple carefully marshalling enough resources to put together a down payment. They buy their house, recognizing full well that it needs a fair bit of work. They can't stand the black and silver wallpaper in the master bedroom. There are mounds of trash in the basement. The kitchen was designed for the convenience of the plumber, not the cook. The roof leaks in a couple of places, and the insulation barely meets minimum standards. The electrical box is too small. The lighting in the bathroom is poor. The heat exchanger in the furnace is corroded. But still, it is this young couple's first home, and they are grateful. The months slip past, then the years. The black and silver wallpaper has been replaced with tasteful pastel patterns. The couple has remodeled their kitchen, doing much of the work themselves. The roof no longer leaks, and the furnace has been replaced with a more powerful unit that also includes a central air conditioner. But better yet, as the family grows, this couple completes a couple of extra rooms in the basement and adds a small wing to serve as a study and sewing room. The grounds are neatly trimmed and boast a dazzling rock garden. 25 years after the purchase, the husband one day remarks to his wife, you know, I really like it here. This place suits us. Everywhere we look, we see the results of our own labor. This house has been shaped to our needs and taste, and I really feel comfortable. When Christ, by his spirit, takes up residence within us, he finds the, the moral equivalent of mounds of trash. I'm still quoting Carson here. The moral equivalent of black and silver wallpaper and a leaking roof. He sets about turning this residence into a place appropriate for him, a home in which he is comfortable. There will be a lot of cleaning to do, quite a few repairs, and some much-needed expansion. But his aim is clear. He wants to take up residence in our hearts as we exercise faith in him. Make no mistake, when Christ first moves into our lives, he finds us in very bad repair. It takes a great deal of power to change us, and that is why Paul prays for power. He asks that God may so strengthen us by his power 
in our inner being that Christ may genuinely take up residence within us, transforming us into a house that pervasively reflects his own character. End quote. The idea of this inner renovation, the idea of ridding yourself of the old and the filthy and the soiled and putting on the new and the clean and the radiant, it appears in Paul's writing in several forms. Perhaps the best example of this occurs in Colossians 3. As I read a long passage, Colossians 3, 5 to 17, examine yourself to see if this is what is happening in your inner being, in your heart. This passage spells out in great detail the changes that take place when Jesus takes up residence in someone's heart. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, Lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What a wonderful, encouraging Upward call. This, this passage is, give, is a vision of the Christian life. It, it describes the renovations, the wonderful renovations, the happy renovations, sometimes difficult renovations that will be taking place in your heart if Christ is dwelling there, if Christ is living there, taking up residence there. And these renovations are for your good as well as God's glory. Are these renovations taking place in your inner being, in your heart? 
Is Christ living there? Is his presence characterized there? Does his presence characterize that living space? Well, this week, pray that this renovation takes place, continues to take place in your heart and in the hearts of your Christian brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, according to the riches of your glory, grant that we, the saints of Christ the King Church, might be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. That we, being rooted and grounded in love, in your love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of you, God. We want that more than anything, to be filled with all the fullness of you, our God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen.